potential investor who had to pull out because of the uh, because of the COVID thing, yeah, the collapse so. of society as we know it, etc. Well, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, <laughs> perhaps that's the story to tell. That that was Anders Swanson and Leanne Perry of the Plain Bicycle Project recalling the disaster movie scenario we were all thrust into mid-March. Just as Anders and Leanne were about to travel to Utrecht to pull off round three of the Plain Bicycle Project. As I was preparing and editing Plain Bicycle for release, the world was jolted by a pandemic unlike anything we've seen in a hundred years. Everyday lives across the globe were changing in what felt like an instant, and the way we socialize, work, and move around our city were altered as a result. I'm Erin Riediger, and this is Plain Bicycle. I'm Leanne Perry. My name is Andrew Swanson. Uh, my name is Ian Frank. My name is Torrin Swanson. My name is uh, Herbert Cummins. My name is Melissa Bruntlett. And I'm Chris Bruntlett. I'm Dan Ryle. My name is Jenny Sawatsky, and I'm part of the Plain Bicycle Project. This is not a bike shop. This is a, this is a culture bomb. It's a North American-wide problem that cycling is still seen as sport and not transport. Oh, I'm coming to the Netherlands because I want to, to, to import Dutch bicycles. So you've promised them and then you go over and you only have three months to do it and then halfway through you're, you've basically got 2% of the bikes you needed. I've waited and waited for this bike and I am thrilled. I'm thrilled beyond belief. Part 6. Bike Boom 2020. In the midst of the March 2020 coronavirus panic, while the world was going into lockdown, the Plain Bicycle Project team were in Europe and had been planning on a third shipment. Leanne Perry, Anders Swanson, and Torrin Swanson had been traveling since February, initially to attend the Winter Cycling Congress in Finland, where they met up with Herbert Tiemens and discussed pulling off round three. Anders and Leanne stayed in Finland after the conference to finish work on a bicycle documentary and were planning to travel to Utrecht in March to pack a shipping container once again with second-hand Dutch bikes bound for Canada. They initially had a financial partnership and a plan to ship more child and teen-sized bikes. But due to the uncertainty of the market and looming global financial strain, the sponsor understandably backed out. The Plain Bicycle team was left with a difficult decision. Put forward their own money to pay for the shipment and hope even during a looming global health and financial crisis, people would still be willing to purchase a bicycle. Or they could back away from the shipment because of the mounting uncertainty. There was a couple things happening too. The place that we were getting bikes was moving. And so the, they had left um, in the in the yard a few hundred bikes for us to go through but they needed those bikes gone by the end of March and um, yeah we were only able to get there mid-March and so Torn and Taylor were um, working on the bikes while uh, Anders and I and Winnipeg Trails were trying to figure out whether or not the project should even go ahead so they were they were going ahead and we were waiting to figure out whether that was 
feasible with like just watching the news every day that week and wondering about shipping, how if shipping would change uh, and uh, whether or not we could put the money up front for it through through Winnipeg Trails and I don't know. This doesn't seem like an accurate way of describing the craziness of that kind of so it seems like every time we try and do this it's like this time was ridiculous though in my mind my mind anyways because like um i'm accountable to the board and you know like trying to figure out what are the and we're like it was kind of hinging essentially on um no matter what way we did it it was to a certain extent going to hinge on uh knowing that people would be able to buy them and then suddenly it's like Wow, like more people have gotten on unemployment than since the Great Depression times 10. Um, uh, things like, um, we don't know if um, airplanes will ever be allowed to travel again. Uh, and we're not sure what uh, international shipping is going to be like. And by the way, um, all of the boats and containers in the world are all in Asia because Asia has been shut down for um, so long that um, there's nothing moving out of there, so there's no reason to ship anything, and um, the costs are probably going to be double. And um, oh, by the way, um, the place where you're going to stay at, uh, we're closing for good because we're terrified of outsiders, and um, we're sorry to inform you, but you can't stay here, uh, and etc. 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 And then all of a sudden, there's so one person with experience of what to do with a person who she was like, <laughs> you have to talk to her, but I think she, well, I know she was like going on a, a Europe trip, you know, and uh, visiting short briefly with my brother. And then suddenly like in quarantine together um, in charge of like a massive <laughs> project and sorting through 500 bicycles and like kind of having the entire city of Utrecht to themselves because nobody else was going anywhere. They were the only ones who could like work outside with nobody like nearby and keep their social distance. And so they just kind of set up camp and then they were like midway through this and we we're still like, I don't know that we can do that. Cause the other thing was like, how do you sell a bike in the middle of that to somebody sort of, we weren't even allowed like going outside and so anyways um, and yeah our original investors had pulled out that week too so they're like we can't we can't support this this is too uncertain yeah yeah so then you got this nonprofit organization and it's like you know you know anyways feeling it but also like a little bit worried about all of the sponsorships that we could possibly generate for the next year and grants and governments themselves like saying that they are suddenly running out of money like <laughs> you know anyways but that, so yeah that was the decision basically got made based on i would say it was a two-part thing um one was um that we physically had the money and b um everything about us was coming down to moments like this where we were facilitating a type of shift that wouldn't otherwise maybe happen that we see as a larger pattern which is happening anyway and we're trying to help the people that are around us and so i mean i can't speak on behalf of all the board but i i know that it was felt that um this was just the right thing to do because there's there's one thing that we're going to need coming out of this it's a bicycle 
So the Plain Bicycle Project chose to take the risk, predicting that an increased need for bicycles would ultimately arise. Unfortunately, Anders and Leanne were sick, and so they weren't allowed to fly. Due to health concerns and the quick closure of borders, they were unable to make it to the Netherlands. So the project was in the hands of Torin Swanson and his friend Taylor, who were able to get into Utrecht before mass lockdown. Anders dreamt up ways to get into the Netherlands as they were getting healthy and borders were closing all around them, but ultimately they decided it would be too difficult and just had to hope for the best. There's a lot of ways out there, like through Russia or uh, Baltic states or different ferries or da-da-da, and it was like, all of a sudden you're like down on some kind of like Lithuanian travel agents, like um, discount site, like looking at like different, you know, and it's like, huh, oh, there's a ferry from there to there. Crazy. Wow. You can get on the, you can get on the short gauge railway line that t- takes you to the ski hill and then take the ski bus down to Stockholm. Like it was like, oh, but wait, no, su- <laughs> such, yeah, such as, <laughs> exactly. Oh, Denmark just closed their borders. Never mind. Do you think that that means that you can't travel in on the train once you're actually in Germany from the Danish border? You know, it's like stupid stuff. Yeah. And we just were like, one day, like, peace, Thorn, good luck. <laughs> Luckily, the group also had their friend Herbert Tiemens, a senior advisor on bicycle and pedestrian networks for the province of Utrecht on the ground. Herbert's like the guy on the ground trying to get the, you know, the real story, like, like, um, you know, what's the good Dutch website for figuring out the immigration status of people landing from North America or, hey, do you mind uh, going by the place and poking your head over the fence and seeing if there's bikes there that look like they're set aside for us still because I haven't gotten a hold of the guy. He doesn't answer his cell phone. <laughs> and he's, so he's like, yep, you know, I'll do that. And, uh, like, acts as translator when necessary, like, or whatever, but... I, I met Anders and Leanne in, uh, and also Dan and uh, Jenny in uh, at the Villo. No, it wasn't. It was the Winter Cycling Conference in uh, Uensu in Finland, and I went there by train. And they arrived. I, we met actually at the boat from uh, Stockholm to Turku, so we had a nice meal in that evening on the boat. And then they were saying, "Oh, we stay for a while in Europe, and we are going." fix a third round for uh, the plane bikes. Um, do you know a place where we can stay for for two weeks in Utrecht, which is uh, cheap and so on. So we were in touch at that moment already to 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 fill the, the third load of, uh, contain- of uh, bicycles. Um, and we kept in touch all the time, but they never managed to come to the Netherlands because the, the outbreak so they couldn't leave uh, Finland or they didn't dare to leave. Uh, Leanne had a cough and after that, uh, Anders was stuck and now they are in quarantine in, in Winnipeg. But they never made it. But uh, Torin and his friend, uh, they made it to, to Utrecht, but they were only with two. So they were having a hard job because they wanted to put all the bikes in, in the container and take the seal off and... Uh, test them before so I helped them for two days I think two and a half days three days I'm not sure to 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 prepare the bikes and to get them in the container so that was my uh, addition to the this time yeah and 
it was quite easy for them. Well, uh, yeah, they knew the place already. They found it, uh, but I could help them out uh, with a lot of practical things in Utrecht, uh, to to go around and where to to buy things and and so on. The last evening when everything was done, we had a nice meal and uh, at the locks at the canal side. It was really peaceful because it was the second week of the lockdown. And there was a lot of uh, people also having a picnic in the, in the parks. And it was it, there was no traffic noise and it was so quiet and it was nice, uh, bright sky. And yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. About a month after the group made the decision to go forward with the project, an interesting byproduct of the pandemic began to take hold. The gap in allowable leisure activities and reduced perception of safety on public transit coincided with warmer temperatures and has resulted in a bike boom. I asked Chris and Melissa Brentlett, authors of Building the Cycling City, the Dutch blueprint for urban vitality, why they think this sudden bike boom is happening. So I think this, uh, the, the corona crisis has been an interesting experiment in what planners call traffic evaporation, and that's the phenomenon of uh, reducing the speed, volume, uh, and access of cars on the streets. And I think for a long time, bicycle advocates have focused on creating infrastructure without um, talking about the idea of um, traffic evaporation. And, and so uh, for the first time in, in our lifetimes, um, most streets have been stripped of cars um, almost overnight, and it's created these um, beautiful conditions where people feel perfectly safe taking out their uh, their five-year-old child or their elderly grandma for a bike ride because they no longer feel threatened or uh, uncomfortable. Um, the The bicycle itself is uh, is a means of recreation. It's a means of transportation. It is a means of, of mental therapy. It's a means of getting outside. Um, and, and getting exercise, and I think those have all been important things um, as people work through this this crisis, being locked down in their homes, um, not being able to perhaps get uh, the same amount of exercise, um, and, and the bike has, has provided them with a, a, a form of escape, if you will. Chris speaks to how the Plain Bicycle Project could fit into the uptake of cycling we have seen over the course of the last month. So I think that uh, bicycles in particular are becoming kind of a scarce resource like face masks and other uh, things that the coronavirus have made um, high in demand. And we're seeing that bicycle retailers uh, are selling out of uh, models very quickly, uh, quicker than they can keep them in stock. And so there may be an opportunity there to... uh, not just manufacture new bicycles as quickly as possible, but also recirculate the existing bicycles. And uh, as we know, there's tens of thousands of these bikes sitting in uh, lots and, and depots across the Netherlands. And if there's a way to recirculate those bikes to other places that possibly need them, um, then there may be an opportunity there to get uh, get them used and, and uh, get people bikes who uh, perhaps uh, are of lesser means or unable to get a bicycle through the store. So... Um, I definitely think that there's an opportunity there for projects such as the Plain Bicycle Project and other uh, organizations that attempt to get bicycles uh, in front of people uh, as bicycles become higher and higher in demand as, as cities come out of lockdown. 
Melissa speaks to why now is a great time to get on a bicycle. If you have been thinking about cycling but haven't tried it, or used to ride a bicycle, but you just haven't in a really long time. Well, I think this is the perfect opportunity for people to really try out a bicycle and try riding it in their cities. Uh, so often in Vancouver with our peers, a lot of the comments we would hear is, I'd love to ride in Vancouver, but I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable riding with my kids. And what better time when the streets are calmed, where people are staying home, there's less cars on the road, less chance for less chance for confrontation or negative uh, interactions with people to really get out and experience your streets from the seat of a bike. Uh, yeah, that's the only thing I would say is just go out. Now is the perfect time. You have no excuse. I asked Melissa and Chris if they thought that the increase in cycling for leisure might result in more everyday cycling. Uh, the answer, short answer is absolutely. Uh, we are big proponents of Recreational cycling as a gateway drug, if you will, to everyday cycling. I think that um, people often need a, a low-stress, low-pressure, more social environment just to give cycling a try um, because it can be quite intimidating. It can be quite perplexing, uh, especially when they, they see the, the types of people cycling in their city. Uh, currently, uh, it can be quite a, a daunting task to join those ranks. So. Um, if they can get out for a, uh, a bike ride through a recreational area or a forest or a, a open streets event uh, where the streets have been closed uh, to cars by the city, uh, that gives them that opportunity to just uh, pull that bike out of the shed or the garage, dust it off, tune it up a little bit, uh, and, and go out with some friends and, and just uh, stretch their legs and, and give it a try. Because for a lot of people, I think um, cycling was something they did as a kid. Uh, and they haven't necessarily kept up the ability to cycle. Uh, and so they do need these kind of low uh, pressure, low stress, uh, low stakes situations where they can give it a try again and, and hopefully recapture that, that joy, that freedom, that uh, um, everyday pleasure that, that, that cycling can be. Over the last few months, we've been introduced to the concept of social distancing. Our opportunity to socialize with friends and family who we don't live with was taken away and replaced by this new reality of Zoom calls and a separation of two meters between people became the new norm. The Omafeats provides an opportunity to socialize and get fresh air from a safe distance. Melissa elaborates. I see the bicycle as a fantastic way for people to socialize and it's in fact been how we've been able to socialize with people here that we know, friends that we can meet up with for a ride on some quieter areas and quieter paths throughout the city and be able to talk and reconnect and have that social connectivity that many of us are desiring right now um, without having to worry about that close contact. And so the bike is going to play a huge role in that because you already keep a little a little bit of space when you're riding next to somebody. It's very rare that you're closer than a meter to someone while you're cycling unless you're pushing a child along, and we really, we're only doing that with our own kids right now. Um, in terms of the type of bike, too, the Alma Feats obviously is perfect for that because you're upright, you're able to look around, you're able to converse more freely. Um, you know, here in the Netherlands, while we've been cycling around, there are people getting out on road bikes. It's very common on the weekends, and... It really isn't a way of socializing. It's a way to go fast. It's a way to get exercise. It's a way to be sporty. And sure, people do that. They go cycling together 
um, on long distances, but often, more often than not, they're, they're moving fast, they're not really talking, they're breathing heavily. And so I think if we're going to look at a bike as a tool for socialization, the OMA feats or the upright bike, city bike is the way to go. Um, and we could see, because of that, a resurgence of that in more and more cities as they see an opportunity to have that social time while still being able to use a bike to get around. The global lockdown due to the coronavirus has made cities reevaluate the amount of street space allocated to cars. Chris and Melissa Brentlett discuss the question of road use emerging from how we are using our city during the pandemic. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that um, the coronavirus pandemic is forcing cities to reevaluate their relationship with the car, uh, in part because the amount of space that it takes up. And so um, as people abandon public transport in droves, uh, cities are scrambling to find alternatives. And I think the bicycle uh, is one alternative that can fill that gap. And um, we're seeing here in the Netherlands and, and in other cities around the world uh, that uh, they are encouraging cycling and they're creating pop-up networks of infrastructure uh, to enable it. And uh, there's a very quick shift happening. It's uh, almost seismic in nature. Um, as cities start reallocating space away from cars towards bicycles, all with the hope of making their road networks uh, function more efficiently and help people get from A to B as they come out of lockdown. And I think, <clears throat> I do think that with the pop-up networks that are showing up in various cities and people using cycling as an option for getting around while public transport and other modes become a little bit more challenging, uh, there'll definitely be more people that will likely continue to cycle. I think the real challenge will be taking those pop-up networks and making them more permanent and then also making sure that they're taking people to where they want to go. So I think so often we focus on the work commute just with regular infrastructure, and I'm sure that many cities are looking at that in terms of the pandemic relief as well. But also, they need to be considering how kids are getting to school uh, because it's not just going to be kids biking on their own. It's going to be parents and children cycling together. And so if those networks include a safe, comfortable way for parents to be getting to school, teenagers to get to high schools because public transport will be a challenge for them as well, then I think there is a possibility that more and more people will take up cycling and that there will be hopefully a sustained effort going forward. I spoke to Herbert Tiemens about the increased demand for safe personal transport in these times. Yeah, yeah. what we see is uh, that there's um, a, a huge demand for uh, transport, personal transport. Uh, we see that public transport transit uh, cannot uh, cope uh, because we have to keep distance uh, from each other. So a lot of people are now looking for other ways to go around. And uh, just this morning, I read in the in the on the internet that Buenos Aires uh, 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 allows uh, people to take their bikes into the metro, that they don't have to take the bus or to to uh, uh, to go to other buses. Uh, in addition to the metro, so they and then they can uh, use transport uh, metro uh, as the main mode, and then additional they allow cycling, which is really good. And also, uh, like cities like Milan or Paris or Brussels or uh, Bogota, they open up the streets for people for cycling. And um, what we see it is mostly the cities who had been working with cycling for years or 
were influenced by the Dutch and Danes uh, years ago. They had their plans already. And now they see uh, that they have to 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 speed up uh, to to work with their plans uh, to speed up. They know which routes the, are the primary routes that people would uh, want to take. So where they have to to act to to make it safe for people to to cycle on. And uh, I think uh, that's that's really a challenge uh, for them now to to make those routes safe in a in, well with tactical urbanism we call it just uh, put the piles on the on the on the streets and the paint and then later on to to make it in a more permanent uh, way and i hope that uh, uh, we will have enough time to to make uh, the key places uh, in a permanent way yeah. I asked Herbert if he saw permanency in the changes cities are starting to make to accommodate more cycling during the pandemic, or if he thought cities would reverse the cycling infrastructure they've created and go back to being more car-centric. I don't think so, uh, because uh, they will see the benefits. Uh, and it, uh, when it lasts uh, for only a month, uh, they will see the benefits already uh, from uh, more people cycling in the streets. Uh, the people uh, that are then cycling, they they will make the voice. They say uh, the, the, the cycling provision should be permanent. Um, it is also that, um, uh, uh, well, the, 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 the simple joy of cycling, it's, it's really powerful, but also it's, it's really powerful that you take people out of... Uh, uh, cars, they have now an option to to cycle, and those people they will uh, benefit the most. Um, the former car drivers, and um, we will see that the capacity of the the transport system it will increase because you take space from cars, and that's counterintuitive, but now you have to show it, and it will be shown in the next coming months. Um, yeah, it's it's a simple math, but uh, you have to prove it and then people will understand it. Yeah. I asked Chris and Melissa if they saw this increase in cycling continuing and what would need to happen to make the bike boom stick? Um, I think that's a difficult question to really give a definitive answer for. I think that cycling in general will likely take an uptick. But I think there's definitely a big cultural shift that needs to happen in North America to move away from this idea of uh, recreation and long distance commuting to more of the everyday trips. And I am hopeful that things like the project, uh, things like the Plain Bicycle Project and just these images of everyday cycling and having access to those shorter trips with these temporary uh, pop-up lanes that are showing up will help to encourage more everyday trips. Uh, certainly, you know, there's no reason that people couldn't um, modify their habits from just looking at cycling as a way to get to and from work or to and from school to also getting to and from the shops as people need to, people still need to get around. It doesn't matter, you know, whether we're talking about pandemic times or post-pandemic. So it could be the catalyst, but I think alongside that, there definitely still needs to be that culture shift in North America in order to see more everyday cycling uh, now and in the future. I think there's no doubt that once people get out there and start experiencing their streets uh, from the seat of a bicycle, uh, it's going to create a lot of demand for that space to remain. And, and the big challenge, as Melissa said, 
is um, ensuring these temporary cycling networks remain permanent um, as the uh, number of cars on the road increases and the pressure comes to uh, take that space back over for for the automobile. Um, there's uh, little doubt that uh, that once people experience how comfortable and, and safe and pleasant cycling can be, then uh, you're going to have a hard time taking it away from them. And, and our hope is that uh, this latent demand that's bottled up over over the years um, to create safe space to, for cycling is suddenly uh, released on the streets, and uh, and then people remember uh, what that's like. Uh, they will write their elected official. They will get involved in their community group. They will organize with each other uh, to make sure that there's an organized uh, bicycle lobby, if you will, uh, to to ensure that this space remains uh, in place long after the uh, corona crisis has passed. And I think building on that, um, a lot of these temporary facilities are being put in with very light, quick and cheap methods, which is perfect for testing out and trialing these uh, lanes and fixing them and adapting them as the conditions shift, but I think that um, most cities will need to look at this and, and look at making them permanent if they are successful, and that will include putting in barriers where it's needed or slowing traffic where it's needed to really keep those numbers up, because if conditions go back to how they were with fast traffic and lots of cars, then we could see those numbers start to dwindle as, as people start getting back out on the streets. Um, so, uh, as we continue to message uh it it comes down to three things it comes down to the infrastructure uh it comes down to the parking uh and the storage end of trip facilities and then it comes down to the availability of the bikes themselves and um all three of those things really need to happen in order to um see the maximum potential of of a uh bike boom if you will um, the infrastructure is now being built by cities. Uh, hopefully the parking is also uh, being taken care of. The The bicycle itself becomes the, the tricky part, and that's certainly where uh, something like the Plain Bicycle Project can fit in. Um, community bike shops, uh, local bike shops, um, to help people get the bicycle that's right for them, because uh, as we so often say, the, the, the retail and manufacturing industry in a lot of places um, is selling the wrong bikes uh, for the wrong reason and, and people end up buying a machine that doesn't fit them uh, either their lifestyle or their uh, their body type or, or their personality, the types of trips they want to make on a day-to-day basis. So uh, if, if we are to um, make sure cycling reaches everybody, uh, we're talking about all ages, abilities, income levels, ethnicities, um, and... Uh, the like, then uh, we really need to push uh, on all fronts and, and not just focus on uh, the infrastructure. It is obviously critically important, but we need to talk about these other softer social aspects as well. I discussed the opportunity to change our streets with Leanne and Anders when I caught up with them over a video call while they were in their two-week post-travel quarantine after flying home to Canada. So what i mean is like what do you want like people to do like they yeah like for mental health reasons for the fact that like now um they have like a quieter traffic on their street um you know they maybe have lost their job um yeah a lot of people are turning to that but 
Um, is it like the level that something like Paris is going to see that's decided to build 150 kilometers worth of protected bike lane? No. And so I got to say that first because coming home, it hurts from where we were. We were in a city where, and so I mean, juxtaposing, we were in a city with an 800 kilometer long um, protected bike lane network where every, um, um, residential collector street, um, has not one, but two, three meter wide perfectly smooth asphalt dedicated bikeways on either side of the road usually um and we were watching from ours you know watching quarantine happening there and you see whole families going together and it's like just a non-stop mix of traffic at the sort of 36 percent of all trips level and so we spent like uh sometime like dreading coming back to a place that has a two percent um of all trips level with no difference in the distances that people need to people just need to travel, but just the infrastructure, and then to watch as as they slowly have been blowing an opportunity um, to capitalize on on empty streets that are clearly telling people like that that it's about that that it's about how you use that street. It's not about like and and this new normal and this like the fact that everybody's scared shitless about like. Um, uh, getting any one of 50 different chronic diseases that now put you at risk of COVID and all this stuff. And then not only that, but having 170,000 different trips trips by people no longer happening on transit that a lot of them still need to happen and not having a backup plan like that's sitting in front of them, right in front of their face. And so to come back as like people, like trying to be like, ah, yeah, so that's my first thing to say about anecdotes about that i don't know the end what you have there well in terms of anecdotes like directly like we had a dozen bikes um ready to go in winnipeg and and we lent them out to people who were you know coming off of the transit system that slowed down and uh, needed these bikes to get to work and so a lot of people had uh, emailed us saying like they're in that predicament right. so yeah i don't know what it would be like in a normal time if you were like hey we've got bikes to lend out here they are for free but anyways that was fairly successful so that's an anecdote i mean i think the the the, the you know what makes me pissed off though like when you ask me about that and i'm thinking about my, my the anecdotes is the anecdotes that stick for me are the people who are like my kid just learned how to ride a bike and uh um my kid's been able to enjoy the street, like, it doesn't want to give it back, you know? And that fucking hurts. Because, like, they're going to have to explain to that kid that that was just a temporary. And, like, from now on, you're not allowed, because this is too crazy. Like, that's not how things are. And um, we basically got to experience what things were like in 1955 for eight weeks. And we can and still can, and hopefully will, keep it. But we could have made a a sort of conscious decision to like lead that and say look everybody here what what you're seeing in terms of fresh air and quiet neighborhoods and the fact that you desperately want to connect and go outside all that stuff is stuff you've taken for granted and the the emperor's standing here in front of you with no clothes the curtains are pulled back this is what it always could have been and you know the problem you know the problem and we can fix it and here you go and um, honestly, like, 
it pisses me off because we're bringing back like a shipping container of things and we just want the people who buy them to have a place to ride them. And we know that the vast majority of people in Winnipeg have already said that they would and would love to do it. And all they need is some is that curb lane with a few pylons for now turned into something better when we rebuild our, our way out of this. And to see us not doing that um, is, is really upsetting. So talk to me in a couple of weeks or whenever you put this together. But like right now, it's for us that missing piece. Because this project, we don't, you know, the bikes are, you know, part of it. But it's the it's the the whole feeling of not having to worry about it that for once everybody finally got to understand for a bit um, that 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 I think we're fired up to make stick. If we want to see continued growth in cycling after the threat of the pandemic is lessened, there needs to be political will and infrastructure to support cycling, so it is safe for everyone to do so. Melissa and Chris continue. Um. Well, this does add a little bit on to what uh, Chris was saying. Um, I think that the bike boom has the opportunity to stick, but it's going to take uh, some coordinated efforts. It's going to take some commitment from the political leaders to make this temporary infrastructure more permanent for people so they don't just think of it as a fleeting idea. Yeah, it was a nice idea while we were all stuck at home or had limited means, but everything can go back to normal now. It'd be... It's, in, it's imperative that they find a way to keep it because now they've given up the space uh, to ca- from cars to bikes. Um, we know it works. We see how it works. Um, the, light, the world has kept moving, so we need to keep that. But I think, you know, building on the idea of making sure bikes are accessible to everyone, I think, you know, the Plain Bicycle Project is this unique opportunity to provide fairly low-cost bikes to people that need them. And in cities that don't yet have this, there is always community bike shops and other nonprofits that are helping get bikes to people of lower income. Because I think they're the ones that have, well, we know they're the ones that have been hardest hit by this pandemic in terms of whether or not they've been able to keep their job, uh, what their benefits are like, you know, dealing with other more important costs, quite frankly, like housing and food. And so if we can provide them with an economical mobility option through the bike, through recycling options, then I think that's a way that we can help make it stick and help make sure that everybody has access and continues to have access well beyond the crisis. Andrew spoke about the opportunity for leaders to do something great for people that would have long-lasting positive effects. Those kind of people, the ones who are really, the, the ones standing up in front of press conferences all across the in every city in North America, like I feel for them. They're stuck in a rut. They're stuck in like dealing with like everybody's knee jerk reaction and all the people who have the right to a stupid opinion. And suddenly everybody, every one of us, I think what happened, forget all that. What actually happened is we suddenly felt vulnerable. We got shaken as people. We, we've, we realized that the end of the world is here, actually, like very quickly can be here. And, and we, we, something as simple as like a, a little bug can take like this entire bullshit that we've constructed down. And while we're feeling that and not building or puffing our chest back out, that's the opportunity that they lost to be the fucking champ. And I still think that they're going to do it, and I know they will. And 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 there's no way that they're going to be able to ignore, for example, the health benefits of this stuff. There's no way. 
and and when cities get their air 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 quality back to how shitty it was before like 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 there's going to be revolutions in places like Delhi and Los Angeles as a result of this because people notice that shit they're not going to forget it's going to be small maybe but it's going to still exist and for us what they could have done is they could be the mayor of Tirana Albania who's going around with a his 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 cell phone taking pictures of bike lanes whenever they're putting a new one every night and like standing and 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 and, and taking a picture and taking a video of it and laughing to himself and and everybody's like, yeah, you go, man. Like, and suddenly has a million followers on the internet, like, and turning this, you know, who I've never, whatever, I'm sure it's a lovely place, but like, like it's now famous for, um, like doing the right thing for being a cool and healthy place. And like, and what's, so I, the other anecdote that I got to say is what's really been really interesting too about this whole thing from my perspective is I'm so used to dealing with and and well you're both of your perspective more so but I just want to point this out for everybody uh, and mansplain the fact that all of these leaders that we are seeing who are really knocking out of the park have all been women like all of these not all but like on the big scheme grand scheme of things like so many chief public health officers and so many mayors who mayors uh, transport ministers environment ministers prime ministers who um, have been the first to kind of jump on this and be like, fuck yeah, like this is our chance to convert our city to this. Because they, I mean, anyways, I'll leave it at that, but as you know. In the Netherlands, the 1970s oil crisis was a huge reason for the country to expand their cycling network and grow and encourage using a bike as an everyday method of transportation. This pandemic, combined with a looming threat of a recession, and climate change may be our generation's moment to grow everyday cycling. I asked Herbert Tiemens if he thought that the COVID-19 crisis could be a catalyst for change. Yeah, I think so. It was uh, in Netherlands, uh, it was the oil crisis uh, that uh, caused uh, that. Uh, it was one of the reasons that we started to implement uh, the cycling uh, uh, culture and that we started to nurture it. But... Um, you have now another trigger to 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 implement uh, things to to start with uh, uh, good cycling for provisions, um, which is interesting because now there's a call in the Netherlands. What should the Netherlands do? Um, uh, how should we make space for people on bikes? And um, it, it's especially the the the, the cyclist advocates, uh, the Fietsersbond. They are calling for action, but uh, well, we are way beyond the point as Brussels or like New York or Bogota, where you have to take uh, space from cars. Um, it's it's in our places. It's much more on traffic lights where we have the dedicated traffic lights where you don't want to push a button anymore. Uh, where you have to make more space uh, that people can stand or more green space that they can have a, a flow that they don't have to wait close to each other. So that's a totally different uh, situation if you compare it to, to a lot of cities around the world. Yeah. Herbert speaks to the messaging that will help the increase in cycling created by the bike boom stick around after COVID-19 times. I think it's really important. Uh, well, what the, the Plain Bicycle Project already started, it, uh, it's for everyone and it's not about speed, 
but it, it's also uh, uh, sometimes cycling can feel inconvenient when you get wet, when it's raining, uh, when you have to carry heavy stuff or when it's a long distance. So um, you have to acknowledge that and you have to uh, help people to uh, make workarounds. How, uh, which are, are the, 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 which gear should you use when you are, uh, which, uh, uh, when, when you're wet? Uh, what are the options to have your stuff delivered uh, by bike or by different uh, ways? If it's uh, really heavy, have those backups. Um, don't say that cycling is always uh, the, the the cure, but make it as 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 optimal as possible. Yeah. Back at home in Winnipeg, some residential streets have been closed to cars and open to people to provide more space for people to walk cycle and play at a safe social distance. Although this is important, so is safe space to cycle on busier streets that can more easily connect people to and from their essential destinations. Leanne Perry explains. That's exactly it and that particular criticism came after watching um, I think it was EPC maybe and listening to the public administration talk about uh, the plan, their COVID plan, which was to open six more streets and to take a look at which streets they were. And the reason why they chose those streets was because it were, it fell into a particular category for them that that for them that meant they didn't have to make a dis- any decisions or take any risks because it was all it's already a street that's kind of out of the way and it, people like with decreased traffic you're already seeing takeover by people anyways so they're just going to put up a barricade and say they did it themselves but they're basically um not thinking about uh, the 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 tool of biking as a form of transportation because clearly they didn't um, consider where people were going to go or where they're coming from uh, and who are the people that are currently needing these bike lanes more than anybody and there are um, like if you think about the people who are working from home who have kids at home who live on residential streets, those streets, um, yeah, tend to be the ones that are easier for people to be encouraged to take over easily. But when you look at a big street like uh, with six to eight lanes on it, um, one person standing on the street with their kids outside the door isn't actually going to take up enough space to feel safe. So... Um, the the need from the uh, the city is to make those make those decisions uh, and and provide a safe space where people themselves can't take over. I guess also the other thing that kind of they they weren't quite um doing a good job of, in my opinion, was that this was an opportunity to um, message. Like, you had everybody in the city's ear and a public message about cycling as a form of transportation was really 
critical. And at this point, they, they didn't seem to understand that themselves, so they couldn't communicate that to others. The things that we knew uh, was that people needed to stay home, people needed to distance from um, each other, but they but that there was a category of people who were still needed to do essential work. Yes. And those people needed to get to work. So whether you you were deciding to open up this le- like leisure cycling street, it didn't make sense because mm-hmm. the only message you needed to take care of as a city was that we were going to look after people who needed to be, who were essential workers. Yes. And they didn't mention that at all. Exactly. And the, at the same time, they're closing the transit uh, or shutting down routes for transit. So they weren't messaging, they weren't taking care of the people who were still in this, uh, still trying to get to, to their place of work. Throughout this series, I've spoken with the Plain Bicycle Project team and bicycle advocacy and policy experts on everyday cycling and why the Dutch cycling culture is so important to the message of getting anyone and everyone on a bicycle. Riding a bicycle can be easy, stress-free, and a great way to navigate the city and perform daily tasks. And as a result of COVID-19, more and more people are turning to bicycles as a safe way to socialize, travel, and get fresh air. I caught up with Herbert Tiemens again on the 101st anniversary of Winnipeg's general strike. He thought Winnipeg's history of social action was interesting because like the 1919 strike, it was for all workers in the city. He sees the Dutch view of cycling as something for everyone, and no matter who you are or what type of bicycle you want to ride, you should have access to cycling. I really, I think it's really important that uh, uh, cycling is is uh, uh, for everyone, and um, well, the plain bicycle is truly a bike for everyone. Uh, also in the Netherlands, you see a wide variety of people riding those bicycles. It's not the grannies that use them the most. It's uh, uh, teenagers that are cycling on it uh, to schools. It's it's uh, fathers uh, carrying their children. Um, it's it's really truly is for everyone, and that's something that also stuck in mind because uh, today uh, you have to celebrate your one hundred and first anniversary of the general strike from Winnipeg. And I thought, oh, that's something that's really coming together. That was a general strike. It was a strike from everyone. Everyone went in the streets in Winnipeg. And now we see those plain bicycles that are also truly for everyone. Uh, We received uh, some criticism um, when you were uh, announcing your podcast that we were bike Nazis. And I really reject that. It's, it's so bad. Um, the bicycle um, and in the culture of the Netherlands is for everyone. And we want to include everyone. Also the speed cyclists, also the the, the cargo bike moms, uh, the, the Oma Fietsen. Well, that's a particular part that you were missing. But we don't exclude anyone in, in our cycling family. Um, so uh, we want to bring that part also to, to Canada. And I hope that you can have, well, a, a bigger family. Yeah. Looking forward, 
I asked Melissa and Chris if they thought that the Plain Bicycle Project could have a continued role in growing everyday cycling. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, so the thing I think we really like about the Plain Bicycle Project is its social marketing at its very best. It's It just relies on word of mouth and um, people passing on the gospel, if you will, of everyday cycling through their social media channels, through their communities, and through their uh, own social circles. So they're out every day acting as an advertisement for this product. Um, they're showing people how easy and, and simple and comfortable cycling can be uh, with every Instagram post, with every uh, drive-by that they do uh, being spotted by neighbors. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that um, it's changing hearts and minds uh, within the community, uh, and uh, it, that can be done within a city or uh, digitally around the world uh, to show people that uh, what is possible, because I think right now we're we're looking for solutions to uh, the predicament that we find ourselves in, uh, and it just happens to be that this 200-year-old uh, invention may be uh, one of those solutions that we are looking for. The Plain Bicycle Project offers this incredible opportunity to bring low-cost, upright Dutch bikes to, right now, to the city of Winnipeg, but I think there's the potential, if a program like this was extended to other cities across Canada or throughout North America, there really is that opportunity to see what um, what upright cycling looks like and feel what it, what it's like to ride on an upright bike. I mean, I think one of our biggest complaints, we've talked about it a lot when we were living in North America, is finding the bikes that we needed to make these everyday trips. We had traveled to the Netherlands, we had experienced how easy and how comfortable it was to ride on Anoma Feats, but then finding them in North America was such a huge challenge. And, um, you know, we've seen lots of retailers take the leap, try to bring some in, but the market doesn't react in the same way. I mean, it's very difficult to keep a bike shop open when... You're only selling one or two bikes here or there, but with the Plain Bicycle Project, it becomes this opportunity to have those types of bikes and show retailers this is what people want. So if they invest the $100 in a, in a cheap Omafeets from the Netherlands, ride it around and realize they love it, but they want something newer, a little more comfortable, a little more their size, then they can start demanding to retailers, you know, these are the bikes that we want to see. This is the type of riding we want. And I think if we can get that kind of culture in more and more cities outside the Netherlands, then the the future is really bright for transportation cycling and everyday cycling and, and making sure that there's the right bike for everyone, no matter what their trip. Uh, if they want a road bike, it's there. But if not, then there will be other options for them. I'll add one more thought. Um, I think it's it's becoming increasingly obvious that the the economics of the bicycle industry, at least the transportation bicycle industry, are very difficult, especially in emerging markets like North America, like Australia, New Zealand. Um, bike shops and manufacturers have a really hard time making ends meet and selling a product that's um, that's affordable to their customers. And, and so perhaps we need to look at other models, other forms of, of uh, subsidize, subsidization um, to help get these bicycles uh, underneath people because uh, as it stands I think we're we're so focusing our energy on infrastructure and and policy uh, we do not talk about uh, how we get the right bikes uh, in front of the right people and uh, it's the plain bicycle project is certainly one way of doing that 
The third shipping container of second-hand Dutch bicycles arrived in Winnipeg on April 30, 2020. Given the need for affordable, easy-to-ride bicycles to be in the hands of people as quickly as possible, the Plain Bicycle Project gathered a group of volunteers to work tirelessly to get bicycles into the hands of their customers as soon as possible. On May 28th, about a month after the shipment arrived, they were able to give bikes to the first 50 people who signed up for round three of the project. At the release of this episode on May 31st, 2020, the Plain Bicycle Project is still repairing Dutch bicycles for sale. If you're in Winnipeg or close by, you can sign up to be a part of the project or join the waiting list for future news and projects. I'm back at the Plain Bicycles workshop space at 90 Annabella, where this story began, to talk to some of the people participating in round three of the project. So what aspects of a Dutch bicycle interested you in getting one? Well, the aesthetics, I love the, lay, the way it looks, and um, just they, they appear to be really sort of ergonomically sound as well, so I look forward to that kind of upright experience and, and rather than crouched over and kind of that feel of uh, the, the rushing, but more a, a leisurely approach to it. You know, really, I think this has been a, a pretty fantastic example of um, the community coming together with some leaders to, to move an idea forward. So that's that's pretty great to see. I um, have been looking for a bike for about two years and just honestly have been too lazy to, to look seriously for one. And then um, my friend Ian, he said, just come and get come to Plain Bicycle and get a Dutch bike. So I didn't even think twice about it, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm using it for urban commuting, so I don't need something that's going to go off-road or anything, and this is the perfect bike for me. Nice. And is there anything, like, looking at your bike, like, are you happy with what you got? And Yeah, I, I like something with character. So, um, you know, this is a bike that's been used. I like something that's secondhand. Like, that means something to me. I don't necessarily want to buy new, especially with... I mean, this global supply chain being what it is right now and, and all the problems people are having with bikes, I'd rather have something that's well-loved. So this is fantastic. Cool. And just uh, sitting on it, how do you, how do you feel? Like, is it it's, it's different than anything you've ridden before? It's very different. I've only ever had mountain bikes before, so I'm, I'm used to being hunched over. Uh, and as a tall guy, that sucks. Uh, this is really nice. Uh, I'm, I'm planning on going all over the city. Right now I walk. I gave up my car two years ago. And uh, so I'm car co-oping. But now this will replace a lot of probably the car co-op rides I'm going on. And so I'll be able to get to farmer's markets if they ever open again on my bike this year. And I think it's actually going to change how I'm commuting a fair bit, which I'm looking forward to. So I actually got two Dutch bikes, my husband and I, uh, in the last shipment about a year ago. And we love them so much. And I, But I'm here to see if I can get a front rack for them and maybe a... Another attachment for a light. That's great. So you're accessorizing. I'm accessorizing, <laughs> exactly. So, so that was part of round two in the fall then. Yeah. Um, so how have you been riding your bike around since um, since you got it? Like, where do you take it and what do you use it for? Uh, I take it everywhere that I can go that I can get a bike, which is I live just in St. Boniface and I work downtown. So I take it to work. I take it to grocery shopping. I take it everywhere. Yeah. So you're fully adapted. Did you ride a bike before? Yes. Yeah, I had a bike before, and I've worked and lived overseas. So uh, I've had my kids on the back of my Dutch bike here, uh, and it is a parade. <laughs> People look and stare and love it. So yeah, nice. yeah, I'm a big bike advocate. I hope that the city 
continues to leave uh, the streets kind of open for active transit and I would really encourage the city to keep supporting active transit. The Plain Bicycle Project has changed my life. Even though I used a bicycle for urban transportation before, I didn't understand just how comfortable and simple it could be until I sat on my beautiful rusty Oma Feats, complete with two broken bells and a bumper sticker. These bicycles left abandoned 6,500 kilometers away in Utrecht have been recycled, recycled in a place that doesn't share the same bicycle culture, but can start to understand something about cycling and urban life that the people didn't have access to before. The Plain Bicycle Project isn't a bike shop. It's a culture bomb, and its effects will continue to make waves for years and decades to come in my windy prairie city. This was the final episode of Series 1 of Plain Bicycle. Please keep subscribed in your podcast feed for additional content and new series announcements as we keep the conversation going on everyday cycling. This is not a bike shop. This is a this is a culture bomb. It's a North American wide problem that cycling is still seen as sport and not transport. Oh, I'm coming to the Netherlands because I want to introduce to import Dutch bicycles. So you've promised them, and then you go over, and you only have three months to do it, and then halfway through, you're you've basically got two percent of the bikes you needed. I've waited and waited for this bike, and I am thrilled. I'm thrilled beyond belief. Thank you for listening to Plain Bicycle. Plain Bicycle is an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast by myself, Aaron Riediger. You can follow me on Twitter, at Aaron Riediger. Follow at Plain Bicycle Podcast on Instagram for visuals to accompany this episode. Visit the Plain Bicycle Project on Twitter, at Plain Bicycle, Instagram, at Plain.Bicycle, or their website, PlainBicycle.org. Please spread the word by subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast. A key resource for this podcast was Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality by Melissa and Chris Brentlett. Please visit the episode post on Instagram for additional resources and thank yous. And we just were like... One day, like, peace, Thorne, good luck. <laughs> <laughs>